great to see you all. We made it easy for you with the Bible readings tonight. First page and basically the last page of the Bible. Flick back to the first page of the Bible. Flick back, flick back to where we started, the first reading there, because that's what we're starting. We're starting in the book of Genesis tonight, but uh, I'll pray for us as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at this really important part of your word. Uh, and we pray that you will give us now uh, humility before it, help us to listen to it, help us to bring our minds into line with your word. Uh, and we pray for me that I will teach it faithfully and clearly. Uh, but most of all, we pray that we will better understand what it means that you created this world that we live in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our uh, world is a beautiful thing. This earth is beautiful. You only have to walk outside today and look up and see the blue sky, to just say, this, this is an amazing world we live in. Uh, Victoria and I just had a holiday. We went up to North Queensland and we went up in a hot air balloon. I had no interest in going up in a hot air balloon. I was frightened out of my life, but uh, the things we do for love, it was our 25th wedding anniversary. Victoria had always wanted to go on a hot air balloon, so we went on a hot air balloon. And uh, I was going to show you a photo, but uh, my kids mocked me in the photo, so I didn't want to show it to you, uh, because... They said you could see how excited Victoria was and how scared I was in the photo as uh, we were standing there in the basket before it even left the ground. And, and I, must admit, I was terrified, I really was. So for the first five minutes, Victoria's there leaning over the edge, taking photos, and I'm there like, oh, that, that's interesting. Yeah, like, <laughs> back like this. But after a while, I got used to it. Uh, and as you look out, as you go up there in something like that, and you look out over the mountains, over the rainforests, over the lakes, all those things, you're just straight, takes your breath away. This world is just a beautiful, amazing thing that we live in. Then though, it's interesting, we got back to where we were staying and I flicked on the TV and there was the news and uh, the headline on the news was youth crime wave across Queensland. Thankfully, Queensland, not New South Wales. But, and the story was about 12-year-old boys being arrested for breaking into people's homes and assaulting them because they've got nothing better to do and about how the Queensland government is trying to work out what to do with 12-year-old and 13-year-old criminals. See, our world is, is beautiful, but then at the same time you look at our world and you say, it is broken and, and it is hopeless. Our world is messed up and I just don't think anyone can argue with that. People are broken. Uh, you see, despite the beauty of this world, there is an epidemic of hopelessness in our world. Uh, if you look at our society, you think about it, people have never been wealthier, people have never had as much as, as we have now, people have never had as much opportunity to enjoy the beauty of this incredible world, but if you look at our society, people struggle to work out why life matters, and people struggle to find joy, struggle to find any purpose. And so what happens is people search for meaning in all sorts of places and they never find it. So what people do is they, they put on a happy face and they live for the moment. You know, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They live for the next experience, trying just to capture moments of what we call happiness, glimpses of happiness. Or perhaps at their best, people say, I'm going to find meaning by trying to live for other people. I'm going to try and find meaning to live a life that, that helps people in some way and perhaps live a life where I might be remembered after I'm gone for the good that I did. The reality is very few people actually achieve that. Very few people are remembered after they go. And so the reality is there is just this epidemic of hopelessness 
in our world. You might be thinking at this point, wow, Phil needed another week's holiday. This is a uh, really depressing take on things. No, I had a great holiday, but sadly, this is just the reality of our broken world if you look at it with reality, if you look at it with open eyes. Now, of course, as Christians, we know our world has always been broken, ever since sin entered the equation. We're going to get to that in Genesis chapter 3 in a couple of weeks' time. So this is not a new problem. But I think in our modern Western culture, the culture we are living in right here, right now in Sydney, I think that lack of hope has gotten worse. And it's gotten worse basically every year for every year that I've been alive. And I think the number one reason for that is because our society has stopped believing Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. I think this is actually the fundamental problem with all of our society, it's to stop believing Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Look come up on the screen. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, until a couple of hundred years ago, even if people weren't Christian, that was their understanding of the world. Even if people didn't follow Jesus, their basic understanding of the world, that it was created by God... And so there is meaning to our existence. There is meaning beyond this world. There is meaning beyond this life. But a couple of hundred years ago, that dominant view started to change to now where the majority view in our culture is a view that totally excludes God from the equation. See, what happened is the theory of evolution started a movement where people started to believe this world has always existed And it just goes on and this world and we ourselves are just a random endpoint of a great cosmic accident. And over time, that view has more and more tried to exclude any mention of God, any place for God in the equation at all. The world is all there is. This world is all there is. So make the most of it. And so as that view has become dominant, we call it materialism. The idea that this material world of stuff around us, this is it. This is everything. There's nothing beyond this physical existence. As that has become the dominant view, is it any wonder that people have lost hope? Because if you think about it, it is a fundamentally hopeless, and I mean that in every sense of the word hopeless, a fundamentally hopeless way of viewing our world. I think most people survive in our world by being inconsistent. And they keep importing meaning into their life from their old religious way of thinking. So, but if they actually thought rationally, if they actually said, this is how I view the world, they would say, there is no hope. There is no meaning. Because we are just an accident. And other people, why do I have to treat them well? I mean, other than maybe so that they treat me well. That's, that's what it comes down to in the modern world. I, I only treat other people well so that they treat me well, or perhaps so that I don't get into trouble with society. See, our world just doesn't get this. They think if we can just educate people, they'll find hope and they'll find meaning and they'll want to love one another. If people can just know Shakespeare better or if people can can just know science and chemistry and, and everything better, then they'll be better people. But why? Why would they be? If this world is all there is, if this world has no beginning and no end, no purpose, it doesn't matter how educated you are. It's all for nothing. See, the problem with our world is it has thrown out Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the truth that God created the world. Psalm 14, verse 1, written thousands of years ago, it says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It is the most foolish thing in the world 
to look at this world and then say, there is no God. If only our world would turn back to Genesis 1. But of course, for us as Christians, we have meaning and hope. I pray you know this, in Christ, we have incredible meaning, incredible hope. Praise God, our lives have purpose. But this opening part of the Bible is so important for us as Christians to keep looking at it. Yes, we wish our world would come back to it, but it's so important for us to keep looking at because you need Genesis 1 to actually understand who you are and to understand why we exist. So over the next few weeks, we're looking at Genesis 1 to 11. So we're looking just at the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Now, I know we always talk about at the start of every series how important this book of the Bible is. I know I do that. But I'm not exaggerating when I say you must understand Genesis 1 to 11 if you're going to understand the rest of the Bible. When we do our intro to the Bible course, which we're actually going to be advertising later on tonight, when we do the intro to the Bible course, we spend more time in these chapters than any other part of the Bible. They are that important. Because the book of Genesis is not just the beginning of the story. It's not just like the first page to get us going and get us into the story. It actually lays the foundation for how we are meant to understand the three most important things every person needs to understand. Firstly, it's the foundation for how we understand God. Secondly, it's the foundation for our understanding of God's creation, this world we live in. And then thirdly, it's the foundation of our understanding of ourselves, what it means to be a human being. So this is pretty important stuff. Now we're going to actually cover chapter one in two weeks. That's why we stopped reading it halfway through. This week, I'm going to look at what it teaches us about God and creation. Next week, we're going to look at what it teaches us about ourselves, about humanity. So let's get into it. Let's start with that vital first verse. Come with me in your Bibles. And this really is, it's not just the heading of the chapter, it's actually the heading of the whole Bible. So I've called it the big heading in the beginning. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is so important. This universe has not always been here. This universe has not always been here. God has always been. God has always existed. But then at a point in time, he decided to start the universe. There is a beginning. It's funny, the great Christian scientist, John Lennox, have many people read things by John Lennox? A few people put up their hands. John Lennox is a, a great scientist, an Oxford professor, but he's also a Christian. He's a great apologist for the Christian faith. Anyway, he talks about how science has actually come back, the evidence has come back to, to actually understanding that the universe had to have a starting point. There had to be a point where things came into being. But he talks about how lots of scientists he talks to won't accept that, despite all the evidence, and they won't accept it, they're quite open about it, because it opens up the likelihood that there is a God. And that doesn't fit with their way of, of picturing the world, so much for value-free science. But, but you see, the Bible is clear. There is a beginning. Before then, only God existed. God has always been there. But then God created. Now that word, look there, that word that it uses there to create, it's only ever used of God in the Bible. No one else does this. Because it's not the word for making pottery. It's not the word for putting together your Ikea furniture. It's not, not for making a house or, or those sort of words. Because God didn't just pull things together and shape them into their form. God created it all from nothing. And when it says there, look there, the heavens and the earth, that's the Bible's way of saying everything. The point is, from nothing, God created everything. When you look through 
one of those super telescopes or you see it on TV and when you look through it and you see those, those pictures of distant galaxies, God made them. When you, when you read those books by the, you know, the Stephen Hawking's of the world and the, you know, those super physicists and all that sort of thing, when they explain how there, there are millions of galaxies and it's all constantly expanding and how the conditions in our galaxy that are, enable planets to circle the sun in just the right orbit with just the right tilt on the planet, that's what enables life to thrive on this one planet in all these galaxies. That is not a one in 50 billion accident. It is the handiwork of God. It's the wonder and the glory of God. And if you, if you look through a microscope at the smallest things, you know, the atoms that, that, that make everything up, that come together to form the human body, that is not a one in a million trillion accident. It is the glorious creation of God. I remember watching a TV show on, on the ABC, one of those documentaries, and this scientist was talking about the human eye he was saying there's absolutely no reason for the human eye to have come about the way it has. And I was just expect, waiting for him to say, because God, it isn't it amazing because God made it. And he said, it's just amazing how evolution has come up with this one in a trillion accident. I thought, you fool. You fool. It's staring you in the face. It's because God made it. God created it. I often joke it takes a lot more blind faith to be an atheist than it, is to be a, than it does to be a Christian. See, to believe that this is all an accident rather than the work of God, the Bible says, takes willful ignorance. But the point here is, God is not a part of our world. God is above our world. He has always existed. He stands above everything we see, this whole creation. And that means God gives it its meaning. We do not live in an accident. This creation was made by God for his glory. And so if you want to grasp its purpose, and if you want to grasp your purpose, we need to find it from the creator. We need to go to the one who made it. See, to understand ourselves and understand our world, we need God to explain it to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the truth. That is the basis of everything else. It's the only thing that gives anything meaning. You cannot understand our world. You cannot find meaning in our world unless you first know and grasp that truth. Well, if that's the heading, now we get into the creation story. So come with me, verses 2 to 31. That was just verse 1. Come to verse 2. So what happens now is the camera, it had, it had zoomed out to, to look at the whole universe, and now it zooms in just on this earth. And look there, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. See, the, the picture here is as if you were standing there on that day, watching what was happening. Obviously, no one was standing there. Moses wrote this for us, and he did that by God's inspiration. Moses, there were no eyewitnesses to the creation. Uh, God inspired Moses. But if you were there, this is what you would have seen in the beginning. The world was an empty canvas covered in darkness, it was formless, it was empty. The point is, it couldn't sustain life. It was inhospitable, but God was there. It says, above it all was the Spirit of God, ready to speak, to turn this dark, inhospitable, empty world he'd created out of nothing into this beautiful thing full of life that we get to benefit from. I'm going to pause at this point, because it's about now, as you come to verse 3, 
and the first day of the story. It's about now that people suddenly get extra interested and move forward on their seats because the problem we have with this is we all come to this chapter with our questions about did it all happen in six days? We all come with the wrong questions to Genesis. Genesis 1 has become a battleground for people uh, about how science and the Bible fit together. Did God make the world in, 24, in six 24-hour days? I know I said 24 six-hour days. That would have been more interesting. But in six 24-hour days, and do you have to believe that to be a Christian? Can, people ask, you know, can you accept everything that, that modern science says about the age of the world and evolution and, and all those things and still be a Christian? Now, I cannot deal with all of those debates here in my sermon tonight and have you home before 3 a.m. I just can't do that. Uh, And truth be told, I don't actually want to uh, because I want us to get to the meaning of Genesis 1, the theology of it, because that's why it was written for us. But I will make a couple of short comments to at least help deal with the issue. I'm just going to say, I'm not going to do them all justice. Uh, And I just, I I don't need everyone to come to me after and say, oh, but what about this or what about that? If you want to know more, come and talk to me and I'll give you books to read and and things to think about and so forth. But as we start, some thoughts on Genesis 1 and science. The first is this, please remember that godly Bible-loving people, people who love Jesus, who believe he died for our sins, believe that he rose from the dead, believe that Jesus did every miracle that he did in the scriptures, have different views about how to read Genesis 1. That's the first thing I want you to remember. So the fact that smart, godly Christians come to different points of view, that should make us realise we should be a bit humble about whatever view we hold uh, and not make it a point of division. Because sometimes in churches this can become a a point of division between those who are so-called six-day creationists and those who are not or that sort of thing. I'm saying that there are smart Christians who fall in all sorts of places on this. Second thing though, the view you hold must affirm that God's word is absolutely true. It must agree that God's word is what we call infallible, totally trustworthy and inerrant, without error. And I think it must agree that what we learn in Genesis is historical. This is not written as a myth. This is history, even if at times it's written in metaphorical or poetic form. Uh, It is history. Third thing, whatever understanding we come to, we have to make sure that the Bible is our final authority, not science. See, it is absolutely legitimate to learn new things through science and then go back to the Bible and say, actually, we've been understanding that wrongly and actually the Bible didn't actually say that and I can see how I meant to have read the Bible. See, that is what happened a few hundred years ago. Every person in history till a few hundred years ago believed the earth was the centre of everything and that the sun revolved around the earth. Not just Christians, every person believed that. Because every person got up in the morning and the sun went like that. And they went, well, that's, that's obvious, isn't it? And then some bright person created a telescope, I'm simplifying it, created a telescope, and, and they worked out, hang on, the earth goes around the sun. And there were some people who said, oh, well, the Bible must be wrong. They said, we've got to throw out the Bible because, because the Bible always taught us that the earth was the centre of the, the, the solar system. Well, it wasn't the solar system. If you think about it, it was the earth system. Anyway, they, but what they would do, they then went and looked at it and then other people said, but hang on, are you just quoting the Psalms where it says, the earth cannot be moved? They said, yeah, but 
Can't you see that even in its original context, that's making a point about, about the fundamental stability of God's world. And so it's not, it's not making a, a point about geology and a, astronomy and all that sort of thing. And, and so people very quickly worked out, actually, the Bible, we can actually understand the Bible differently to how we'd read it before. That is entirely legitimate. But you can only do that if that reading is actually a legitimate reading of the Bible. You can't just change the Bible to fit in with science because science is not infallible, the Bible is. See, the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the authority. Yes, make sure the Bible is saying what you actually think it's saying, but if the Bible contradicts science, science is wrong because God's Word is not. And it's amazing how often scientific theories get proved wrong over time. And that's my fourth point. Science can be wrong. I think people in the modern world, as we've thrown out God and the authority of the Bible, have made science like a God, like an infallible God. And whatever the latest scientific theory is, it's, it's untestable. That's not how science is meant to work. Science proposes theories on the basis of the data and tests them and lets, lets things be tested. And over time, things are proved right and things are proved wrong. Good science actually grew out of people who understood Genesis 1. And they said, because God has made this world, there is order to it. And we can observe things and we can then theorise about how that will happen in the future. See, that's why we need to listen to science. When the doctor tells you this is what you need to do to get well, listen to the doctor. But science can go beyond its bounds, or more particularly, scientists can go beyond its bounds. See, and when scientists exclude God from the picture, science can actually become more arrogant than it deserves to be. See, if you start with the assumption that there is no God, you will say that science proves that miracles can't happen. Because your assumption is, this world is all there is, and, and so there is no God who stands above and apart from the laws of, of physics and chemistry, and so therefore, of course, Jesus couldn't walk on water. That doesn't work with everything we know uh, about all these different sciences. But if you believe that God comes before creation, then science knows its place. And the God who created it all can do what he wants, even if everything normally works that way. Don't let science claim more than it can. That's just a few points to note before we come to the six days of Genesis 1. But now I'll get to the $10 million question. Did God make the world in six days? Some Christians say that this is a metaphorical description of creation. So, so some Christians say uh, it, it's using the six days as a literary device to teach us the truth about God and the truth about his creation. It's not interested in the how of creation at all. And some Christians then include parts of the theory of evolution in their, their understanding of things because they say that's how God made the, the, the living creatures that it describes him making in Genesis 1. I want to say godly and smart Christians, probably people in this room, hold views like that. It does not overly worry me if you do. Uh, I don't think this is a gospel issue. So I say if you do hold that view, I believe the Bible demands that Adam and Eve are real people, but we'll get to that in chapter 2. My struggle really is the rest of the Bible just seems to take Genesis 1 more historically than that. The rest of the Bible seems to treat Genesis 1 more historically than that. So the Sabbath command in the book of Exodus, for instance, says we rest on the seventh day because God rested 
on the seventh day. And I, I don't think that works if it's just some literary device or, or just some metaphor. So I think that even though this is written poetically, and certainly it's not written as a science textbook where you're meant to follow and say, this is exactly how it worked and all that sort of thing. And I do think Genesis 1 to 11 as a whole is a more poetic way of recording history than how the story of Abraham is written, which is much more like our way of recording history. But I'm not comfortable taking it just as a metaphor. But even among people who hold to a so-called literal six-day creation, there are different views on that. So some people hold, I'm not going to ask people to put up their hands on this, some some people hold God did it in six 24-hour days. That's what it says, that's what he did. And so they say, therefore, the earth is very young, whatever modern science says. And often the argument is the worldwide flood of Genesis 7 is responsible for the appearance of age of our earth. Another view is the gap theory. So God did each of these creative acts on six days, but there were then gaps of potentially millions of years between each of the days. And that accounts for the scientific theories on the age of the earth. Another popular one is the idea that the days represent ages. And so the days are not literal days, but they represent ages. uh, And each day or age represents a geological age. I think the view I hold, but I hold so loosely, and I really don't care very much if someone contradicts it. The view I hold is what sometimes gets called the analogy view. That the six days of creation are God's work days. They're his, his... steps of creation, but they're not 24-hour days as, as we know them. In fact, they, don't, they can't be because the sun and the moon aren't made until day four. Uh, but what Genesis 1 is describing is sort of what you would have seen if you were watching, if you were there as an eyewitness, but using an analogy we can understand of work days, of periods of time to do something and then you stop because of the evening, but it's not demanding 24-hour days or anything like that. But what Genesis, what the key is, I think, is that this is describing reality, not a myth. It's not written as a myth. As I say, it may be metaphorical in its form, it may be poetic, but it's not a myth. Now, I've shared all that, but here's the thing, I really don't care that much at all about it, And I've spent far too long, much longer than I was intending to on it, because I want you to remember, at its heart, Genesis 1 is not a science textbook. And whatever view people hold on that, as long as they believe it's the inerrant Word of God, the the totally trustworthy Word of God, I don't really mind. You see, John Calvin, in his commentary on Genesis, John, John Calvin is one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all time. In his commentary on Genesis, I'm paraphrasing him here, he said, if you want to learn about astronomy... Don't read Genesis 1, go to university and do an astronomy course. You see, to to think that Genesis 1 is going to explain how the sun and the stars and the moon and the planets interact is just to totally miss why Genesis 1 is here. Genesis 1 is not a science textbook. Its aim is to teach us about God. Its aim is to teach us about our world, teach us about ourselves. It's a theology textbook. That's what God wants us to learn from Genesis 1. Now, as I say, if this is an issue for you, if you want to read more about Genesis 1 and science, let me know. I can give you books or chat to you or talk about it. That's absolutely fine. But now I actually want to get to what I want to talk about, back to the creation story. So let's get back to it. Verse 2, what do we learn about God and the world from Genesis chapter 1? Well, I hope you noticed as we read it, the pattern of each of the days. So let's look at the first day from verse 2. It says, now the earth was formless and empty, 
Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and he called the darkness night. Evening came and then morning the first day. See, what I want you to see is, do you notice how structured and orderly it all is? Do, Do you notice how it's totally driven by God? There's nothing accidental. It's all driven by God. Do you notice how all God has to do is speak and it comes into being? Every part of our creation comes about because God wants it that way. Let's look at the next day. Look from verse 6. It says, Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning, the second day. And you see how it's the same pattern each day, exactly the same thing. Different things are created, but it's exactly the same pattern on each of the days. Now, I'm not going to go through each of the days now. You can read on more. But what do we learn about God through that pattern, through this account? I want to point out a couple of things. First, do you notice how God totally dominates the story? Genesis chapter 1 just says God over and over and over and over again. The, The first readers, they would have heard this and they would have compared it to the pagan religions of their time where one God controlled the sea and another God controlled the mountains and another God controlled Israel and another God controlled Babylon or wherever, you know, and the world was chaotic and fearful because the gods were at war and you were just caught in the crossfires and you didn't know if the crops were going to grow this year because you had to pray to that God if you wanted that to happen. Genesis 1 says, don't worry about any of that. God is in control. There is one God and he's in control. See, we compare it to the modern ideas of the laws of nature, as if the, the, we, our modern world thinks the world is just like a clock that's been wound up and, and just keeps ticking and just keeps working. This is, no, 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 yet God is at work in this world. God is in control of it. Yes, God makes things how he wants them to be, and, and God keeps declaring that it is good. Do you see that there? This is not an accident. This is how God wants it to be, But God is still active in it. And you see the power of God's word here. As I've kept saying, Genesis isn't that interested in the question of how the the tree grew or how the light came. It just keeps saying, God said. God's word is powerful. And of course, we, many, many, many years later, we're at the end of the story And that's why I had us have that reading from the end of the Bible at Revelation. We know God has spoken his greatest word in his son, Jesus. But you see, you get the understanding of the power of God's word here at the start of the Bible. When God speaks, it happens. Well, now he's spoken his final word in Jesus, his son. So listen to that word. See, what is the picture you get of God in Genesis 1? It's that God is totally in control. God is behind everything, and so God is the one who is worthy of all praise and honour and glory. What about our world? What do we learn about creation? Well, look again, what do you, you see how creation is orderly. I've made this point a couple of times. Genesis 1 is why science works, because our world is not chaotic. Science did not grow out of paganism. It couldn't. 
Because paganism said it's all chaos and you don't know what's going on. You don't know whether that God or that God. Science grew out of the Judeo-Christian worldview. That's just a historical fact. It grew out of a Genesis 1 worldview. God has made a world where the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry and the laws of biology all apply. See, you can trust that if you plant a seed, a plant will grow. I realised after I'd written that in my notes, we plant, we're very bad at that in our house and I plant seeds and nothing grows. But if you knew something, you could plant seeds and you can trust that it will grow. If you take your antibiotics that the doctor gives you, it will deal with whatever antibiotics deal with. The doctor can tell you that later. I, I studied something else. If you, if you stand on the water, you will sink. That's just, a, that's just the way God has made the world. God's creation is orderly. But, and this is the mistake of our modern world, the creation is still dependent on the creator. God stands behind it all. Yes, he's made it orderly so that science works, but it only reigns because God says it will. And, and your antibiotics only work because God says they will. And God can step in at any point in time and say, I'm going to let a man walk on water like he did with Jesus. Or I'm going to let a man feed a crowd with, with, with five loaves and a couple of fishes. You know, you know God's creation is orderly but it's dependent on the creator. I just want to encourage you, don't trust in science. Trust in the God who stands behind science. And finally, what you see here is that God's creation is good. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see how sin has damaged God's good creation, but it's still good. I don't think this is our problem in the modern consumerist West uh, we love to use God's creation. But lots of people in Eastern religions and, and at different times in the history of Christianity have thought creation is evil. And in fact, to be spiritual, you've got to get away from, from this world. Uh, you need to withdraw to be spiritual. That's Buddhism at its heart. That's, that's basically the teaching of Buddhism. It's not Christianity. Because God gives us this world to enjoy. But to enjoy it, recognizing that it comes from him. That's why Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, it's on the screen. He says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. This creation is good, but you need to recognize who gave it to you. Which brings me to my final point. What should our response be to Genesis 1? Well, it's really one response, but I put it in two headings because they're the two sides of the coin. The first is, don't be foolish. Don't live in this world and see it in all its glory. Don't walk out of here tonight and look up and see those stars in the sky and then put your head in the sand and hide from the fact that it is a God who created it who deserves your thanks and praise. See, we saw in our studies in Romans, the essence of sin is to live in this world made by God and to fail to give him the honour and the thanks that he deserves. Don't look at this world in all its glory and be a fool. Don't look at this world in all its glory and say there is no God. And for us as Christians who say, yes, we believe in God, we love the Lord Jesus, don't live like you believe this world is all there is. Don't live like you think it's just eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Do not be a fool. Live, and this is my second and last point, 
Live as someone who gives God the glory and the praise he deserves. When you look at the world, when you walk out tonight and see those stars, don't say, isn't nature wonderful? It's one of my pet hates when people say, isn't mother nature amazing? That's like on Christmas morning, I'm assuming there's no small children here, on Christmas morning saying, isn't Santa Claus great? When your parents paid for all those toys that they... And you're giving the thanks to an imaginary creation, you, you know... Don't thank Mother Nature, thank the Lord. Isn't God wonderful? And live and let people see you living as people who believe this world is good, but it's not everything. You see, we don't live for this world, we live for the God who created this wonderful world. And remember this, remember that the God who spoke the world into existence, this is amazing what we read in Genesis 1, but even more amazing he has spoken an even greater word. When you go to John chapter 1, the start of the New Testament, it starts with another in the beginning, but this time it repeats all the language of Genesis 1, but now it says a new word has brought light into the world. And that word is the Lord Jesus. See, God has revealed himself wonderfully and finally in the Lord Jesus. In the same way that God brought light into the darkness at the beginning of time, Jesus has come to bring the final light. It's a wonderful thing when you think about it. It's a wonderful thing. God created this world, but he didn't then say, now search for me. Now you've got to find me in science. Now you've got to find me by looking at at the creation. He revealed himself to us, and he has done that wonderfully by his final word, the light of the world, our Lord Jesus. So give him the praise and the glory. Amen.